Hello, Typology friends. Welcome to this week's episode on the show where we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. This is a really big show, friends. I have been so excited to have Susan Kane, Enneagram 4, and author of the best-selling books, Quiet, The Power of Introverts, and now her latest book, Bittersweet, How Longing and Sorrow Make Us Whole. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ian. It is so great to be here. We've been working to make this happen for a long time, and I'm so happy to finally be here. I, I want to tell people about uh, uh, you know a serendipitous deal. I <laughs> so I read your book, uh, Bittersweet: How Longing and Sorrow Make Us Whole. And then two weeks later, I get a call from my publicist saying, you're never going to believe this. I got Susan Cain on, on the show Typology. I went, okay, that is creepy wonderful. <laughs> so I'm really excited that you're, <laughs> you're here and uh, that we get to talk. And I have to say that when I went through Barnes & Noble and I saw a title, Bittersweet, How Longing and Sorrow Make Us Whole, I went, oh my God, that is a book I'm going to read. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's so funny that you had that reaction because we were talking um, before we went live about how we're all <laughs> Enneagram 4s, and um, I can't tell you how many letters I have gotten from people since Bittersweet came out, or maybe even like in the months leading up to it, saying, are you an Enneagram 4? Because I am too, and wow. you, you must be if you're writing this book. Wow. Well... This is the perfect book for fours. I will say, I want all our, I want all of our folks to go out and get this book because it is so important, so insightful. It requires a very special person to see the obvious. You know what I'm saying? Like this has long been an important topic that really nobody's explored as deeply as you have. And if you are an Enneagram four or you want to better understand Enneagram fours, you just cannot find, you know, a better book to uh, explore for yourself and for the ones that you love who fall into this category of, of human beings. So this is going to be a rich conversation, folks, uh, complete with, you know, poetry and songs and literature and personal experiences. Enneagram fours want to be deeply understood. And so we're going to spend the next six <laughs> hours. This is going to be like a Wagner <laughs> opera. All we're going to do is talk about ourselves, ourselves, ourselves. <laughs> um, you know, as always, I begin with the question, you know, how did you learn about the Enneagram and what did you think and feel when you read the description of the four, the romantic? Um, so I can't remember the exact moment I first found out about the Enneagram. It was quite a long time ago. And I just remember coming across that definition of the four and being like, oh my gosh, that's just exactly me right there, nail on the head. Mm -hmm. um, and well, I guess you just said it, you know, Enneagrams want to be deeply understood. And so there was just this feeling of like, uh, I, I guess it was the same feeling that I get when I read literature, you know, and it might be something that was written a thousand years before I was born. Um, and, and the writer will express something that I feel like, oh my gosh, I've had that identical experience and the feeling of it being expressed by another human so perfectly, it's just the greatest feeling. Mm. Um, it's what I try to do in my writing also. And in fact, like my latest writing is now, 
you know, I, I do a lot of it on my newsletter and I call it the kindred letters and it's meant for kindred spirits who, um, you know, value depth over, over superficiality and sensitivity over cool. I, I, I just think there's something about the feeling of kinship and communion on a very deep level that got me as when I first read that description. Okay, folks. Yeah. Now, I, I want you to to know uh, just a uh, a couple of things. One is what you just described is textbook four. Uh, <laughs> it is this deep, deep desire to be in profoundly rich relationships, emotionally powerful relationships, uh, where we have an experience of like what Christians would have called infused contemplation or of profound, like this moment of transcendence, like we have connected yes. in a way that is so rare and we feel known and for just a moment, not alone. That is so for, you know, uh, because at their core, what fours seem to worry about oftentimes is this feeling that they are missing some essential piece from their core makeup without which, if like if they don't find it, they're never going to experience real belonging in the world. And that sort of haunts the four a little bit. And so there's that desire for, oh, I just want to connect. Does that sound like your experience in life? Well, it's so funny that the last word that you just said is connect, because with everything you were just saying, the person I was thinking of is the writer E.M. Forster, mm -hmm. um, the early 20th century writer, and his famous aphorism is only connect. Mm. And I remember coming across that when I was a kid and being like, yes, that's, sense. that's the essence of everything. Wow. And there's no way he wasn't in Enneagram 4, by the way. Wow. Like if you right. read his famous book, Howard's End, it's just... It's, yes. it's it's basically, The whole book is basically a... Um, a contemplation of the difference between fours and then the more practical in the world type. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Wow. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I also want to highlight here because you brought it up because it, and I think this is really cool. I subscribe to it. You have that weekly kindred letters, which you've just mentioned. It's this newsletter. You got like 450,000 subscribers. It's grown all the time. Just, you described how you kind of make the magic on it. Like, how do people sign up for the newsletter? Oh, I mean, well, to sign up for it, you just go to my website, which is susankane.net. So that's easy. Yeah. Um, and that's been an interesting process because I started doing it around the time that Bittersweet came out. And honestly, I, I revived my newsletter at that time just because, you know, your publisher tells you that's one of the things you're supposed to do to promote a book. So I was just being the dutiful author. Um, but I found, I like I started sending out these letters into the world and the letters I would get back from people, from all mm. these kindred spirits. Mm. Like, I, I, I get the most amazing letters back. It's it, it's such an incredible collection of humans. You just can't mm -hmm. believe it. So it quickly just became like my favorite thing to do is to just write these letters every week. Like I, I just write about whatever I'm thinking about that week. And I know that it's invariably going to be a topic that um, hits home for my readers because I think so many, so many of my readers are Enneagram fours or, or just kindred spirits in, of one form or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always writing out of that feeling of like sending a message in a bottle, like mm -hmm. out into the sea and hoping for it to be received by 
other people who would want to read that message and maybe to hear a message back from them. Like, so in fact, my, my, um, my big new project for the coming years to create some kind of deeper community around that where I can connect with all these people and they with me and they with each other um, in an even bigger way than just through these weekly letters. So I don't even know what form that's going to take, but that, but the project is born out of that deep desire to connect on a very deep level and on a level that's like beyond what you can do normally in Mm -hmm. everyday social interaction. Like I think one of the most frustrating things probably for Enneagram fours is the fact that, you know, you go to a party or something and the way that people connect with each other is so frustratingly Mm. superficial because it's not really socially acceptable usually to go right into the deep stuff. Um, And I really only want to go into the deep stuff. Everything else feels not real to me. Mm. Susan, you and I could be really good friends. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have a name, and maybe you do too. Do you have a name like for this class or subset of the population that is particularly drawn to what I would call, and what Lewis called Zainzucht, right? I'm sure you know the word in German. Of course. Uh, you know, the inconsolable longing for the unnameable. Mm-hmm. Just so yummy when I say it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. And I, like, I'm like i sure you've read C.S. Lewis talking yes. about that. The inconsolable yes. longing for we know not what. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I that that's really the whole essence of what I wrote Bittersweet for, was mm. to understand that sensation because yes. I think it's the deepest part of being alive. I I, I think um fours feel it most intensely, but I think it's at the heart of all yes. of, of human emotional DNA. And and the reason I say that we, we wouldn't have religion if it weren't for that. I think that's mm-hmm. really what religion is all about, whether you're an atheist or believer or in between. I think it's all about the longing for that transcendent space of connection, beauty, love, mm-hmm. union divinity, all of it. You know, I, I agree. And I, and also, I think for some people, they got to burn a lot more calories to mm-hmm. get there, to open themselves up to that experience by virtue of their temperament and disposition. Mm-hmm. I think fours mm-hmm. have the easiest time uh, being, they're more porous when it comes to these kinds of experiences. And true. I think there's a, there's a word I came up with, and I've actually have toyed with writing a book with the title that describes this class of people, and I call them the awakeners, because I feel like they they have a level of, a, and I don't want to make us an elite, give us too much elite status. <laughs> and this is just what we bring to the table of life as often yeah. artists and, and, you know, the contemplatives, the mystics, people in this category, um, that they they have this this ability to help people really see. I think about Joseph Conrad, who said, "My job is to help you see, to really see." You know, yeah. Um, to for me, that means to see that you know, if you if you scratch the surface on anything, you'll find the face of God. Yes, and I think that's what force help mm-hmm. people to do. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And whether you call them the awakeners, which is a great word or the sensitives or the kindreds or whatever it is, um, that idea of sensucht, which C.S. Lewis talked about all the time. I actually, I wrote about that at one point 
And well, I wrote about it in Bittersweet, but I wrote a newsletter about it recently um, and about how C.S. Lewis talked about these, what he called the stabs of joy, mm-hmm. you know, where you would, you get that kind of piercing sense of joy that, that the world can be as ridiculously beautiful as it is. Um, and so then a reader wrote back to me and gave me the most perfect example of this. And it's almost a perfect portrait of an Enneagram 4 also. Mm. So I'm going to read this to you. And this comes from L.M. Montgomery, who wrote uh, Anne of Green Gables, but this comes from one of her other books. And she's describing this character named Emily. And she's describing Emily experiencing one of those piercing stabs of joy. Okay, so this is what she says. She says, and then for one glorious supreme moment came, quote, the flash. Emily called it that, although she felt that the name didn't exactly describe it. It couldn't be described. Emily never spoke of it to anyone else. It had always seemed to her, ever since she could remember, that she was very, very near to a world of wonderful beauty. Mm. Between it and herself hung only a thin curtain. She could never draw the curtain aside. But sometimes, just for a moment, a wind fluttered it, and then it was as if she caught a glimpse of the enchanting realm beyond, only a glimpse, and heard a note of unearthly music. And then it, it, it goes on and on like that. But it's just, oh, well, wait, wait, I have to give you another part of it. That's so good. She says, um, it came with a high, wild note of wind in the night, with a shadow wave over a ripe field, with a gray bird lighting on her window sill in a storm, with a singing of holy, holy, holy in church. And then, and then it just keeps going on like that. But like, this is what I was talking about at the beginning, about the feeling you get when when a writer or any kind of artist describes that sensation that you've been feeling all your life and you could never quite put it into words. So like the fact that they've put it into words and the fact that they've confirmed that there are other humans out there experiencing the same thing. I don't know why that matters so much, but it matters so deeply. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, there, do you know that the poget Ann Porter? She you know, I know the name, I think. Yeah, but no, years ago really. she won the National Book Award. She was an amazing, amazing poet. And she has a poem that's similar to that. So I, let me just throw it out at you, see if, see if it evokes something for you. I love that we're doing this. I don't know who else is going to listen to this episode, Anthony, but we're <laughs> going to have a great time. Um, <laughs> she says, uh, this is a poem called Music, and it goes, mm. uh, For centuries on centuries we have been wandering but we were made for paradise as deer for the forest. And when music comes to us with its heavenly beauty, it brings us desolation. For when we hear it, we half remember that lost native country. We dimly remember the fields, their fragrant windswept clover, the bird songs in the orchards, the wild white violets in the moss by the transparent streams. And shining at the heart of it is the longed-for beauty of the one who waits for us, who will always wait for us in those radiant meadows, yet also came to live with us and wanders where we wander. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. I don't know how I didn't come across that poem, because that's like the essence of my whole book. That's so good. That's so good. 
Hey everybody, one of the lessons I've learned over the years is that not everybody benefits from a traditional 50-minute counseling session. And this is why some people can go to couples therapy or personal counseling for a long time and never really get anywhere. This is why I'm such a believer of intensive counseling and my friends at Restoring the Soul in Colorado, created by my longtime friend Michael Cusick to help couples or individuals experience deep change and half day blocks over one or two weeks. Now listen, if you can't wait months or years to get to the bottom of an issue or to experience breakthrough, you need to get in touch with my friend Michael and his extraordinary team of counselors at Restoring the Soul. If you're looking to get out of the rut you're in but can't wait months or years, call Restoring the Soul today for a free consultation with Michael's staff. Call 303-932-9777 and learn how their intensive counseling process can help you. As a special bonus, just for Typology listeners, make sure to visit www.restoringthesoul.com slash typology to download their PDF called Five Ways Unaddressed Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationships. Okay, yeah, that's great. Essence of the whole book. Let's yeah. just, I, I should have asked this about 20 minutes ago. That's Okay. Just give so that everybody knows it, and I don't skip over it because we've already leapt into Enneagram Four territory. What is the essence of the book before we move on? Oh yeah, okay. So it's about well, it's about what we've just been talking about. It's mm -hmm. about this state that I call bittersweetness, which mm -hmm. is um, it's a tendency to states of longing and poignancy. It's an acute awareness of passing time. And then it's this piercing joy at the beauty of the world. Mm -hmm. And I had been for my entire life trying to figure out what the heck this state was about because I've mm -hmm. always, well, in our culture, that state is seen as being, you know, like negative and gloomy. Mm -hmm. And I never believed that it's not negative and it's not gloomy. I always sensed that it had something to do with transcendence and with like a richer form of happiness. Um, which I knew myself to have. I'm like, a, I think of myself as a happy melancholic, um, but I couldn't really understand it. So the book was my attempt to name this state and figure out what is so profound about it. And the answer I came up with is what you've been talking about this whole time, that, that, um, that as humans, we enter this world with a sense of longing and separation from a more perfect and beautiful world. This is we, we come into the world with this knowledge and mm -hmm. with these kinds of holy tears, you could call them. Um, and and this is one of the best and most beautiful things about us, the, the, the fact that we feel this, because even though we're never gonna actually like get back to Eden, like the the fact of wanting to glimpse it and occasionally glimpsing it, that's that's actually the secret fuel behind our creativity yes. and our capacity for love. It's because of that. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to hit on that uh, in a, in a little bit. But two things come to me as you were speaking. One is very forish. It's in the book I wrote called "The Road Back to You." I talk about a in my description of fours the Victor Hugo quote that melancholy is the happiness of being sad. Yes. I, funny, I didn't know that quote either, um, but it's so perfect. <laughs> and I don't know how I didn't know it because I seriously have hundreds of quotes that I've collected over the years of researching this book, but I don't have that one. Well, it does describe the four. People 
tend to think of us as being depressed. And, and although I think we are prone to depression, oftentimes what it is is just the feeling of bittersweet, just the, the connection to, the, to a world that is a, a mixed bag. And, you know, the, the Buddhists have that wonderful word for suffering, dukkha, and uh, which, you know, you can just leave it suffering, but Ethan Nickturn is a, a really good Buddhist mm-hmm. teacher. He describes yeah. it as <clears throat> the feeling of not at home. Mm-hmm. I love that. Because I think that's at the heart of so much creativity, that that feeling that we're just not at home, that, that there is some, I don't know if it's a platonic ideal out there, that we we... we there's always this feeling of the unavailable, the the unattainable, and the reaching, and the pining, and the yearning. And I think people pay us money to help them get in touch with that feeling as artists, as writers, as songwriters. That's what you know. That's our. That's what we bring to the table of life. Absolutely, that's exactly it. And it's so funny that you mentioned home in that way because I actually say in the book, like one of the exercises that you should do is to just sit down. And write the word home on a piece of paper mm. and see what happens next. Wow. Um, because that's that's the heart of your creative impulse is how you answer that question. Ooh, that's good. Okay, so Anthony, I want to I want to throw a quiz at you. It's not original to me, but to Susan, it's this. Uh, you know, are you a person who's in touch with the bittersweet? Is that how I put it, Susan? Yeah, sure. Okay, or, or, like, do you tend to experience those states of mind? You could say right. Yeah. And I think this will be helpful for all of our listeners to, to kind of give the same quiz to themselves, okay, as we go. All right, you ready? This is a lightning round because we ain't got time for us to explore every number. You ready? <laughs> Are you using the quiz from the book? Yes. Or, okay, okay. Is that cool? So I just want, yeah, it's totally cool. And I just want to say, um, just to give credit, that I developed that quiz with um, with David Yaden, who's a Johns Hopkins professor, okay. and Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a cognitive scientist. and. We found all kinds of cool correlations. Um, mm. Okay, let's give the listeners the quiz. And yeah. We can talk about the, what we found. Cool. All right, here we go. <clears throat> I've already described myself, Anthony. I think everyone's going to know what my answers will be. But here we go. Number one, do you tear up easily at TV commercials? No. Are you especially moved by old photographs? No. Do you react intensely to music, art, or nature? Yes. Have others described you as an old soul? Yes, for sure. Do you find comfort or inspiration in a rainy day? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Do you know what the author C.S. Lewis meant when he described joy as a sharp, wonderful stab of longing? Yes. Do you prefer poetry to sports, or maybe you find the poetry in sports? Definitely the poetry in sports. All right. Are you moved to goosebumps several times a day? (laughs) Yes. Really? Yes. I'm getting to know you. Let's date. <laughs> I've really started to fall in love with you. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Do you see the tears in things? Mm-hmm. All right. Do you feel elevated by sad music? I know the answer yes. to that. Do you tend to see the happiness and sadness in things all at once? Mm-hmm. Yes. Nice. Do you seek out beauty in your everyday life? Yes. Does the word poignant especially resonate with you? Yes. <laughs> Should we go on? When you have conversations, <laughs> when you have conversations with close friends, are you drawn to talking about their past or current troubles? Uh, sometimes. Okay. And do you feel the ecstatic is close at hand? Always. 
All right. What do you think, Susan? Is he is he one? Is he is he a person in, in, inclined toward the bittersweet experience? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that is a high scorer right there. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I'm I'm all in except for the one on prefer poetry to sports because I don't even watch sports. But I, I score high on the rest of the uh, of the of the questions, which is no no surprise to me. Now I just want to know, Susan. I want to talk to you just a little bit about the cultural side of this because. Yeah, but can we talk about the quiz a little bit more? Oh yeah, let's before go. we move on. Okay, because two things I wanted to say. Okay, so one thing is it's just so endlessly interesting to me, and I'm guessing to you guys too because of what you do, just how many different varieties of humans there are mm-hmm. and how everyone brings something so different. So I did um, an interview when the book came out with my friend Angela Duckworth, who mm-hmm. um, she she does all the work on grit. Um, she's a psychologist. And Angela is like, she's a very different type of person. She's very cheerful, hilariously funny, very, she's just like brisk and funny. And she, so we started the interview and she's like, you know, I just took your quiz and I scored a zero. Wow. Literally every single one of those questions, she answered no, every single one of them. Interesting. Um, Which, you know, if you're like a deep, bittersweet slash four type, like the three of us, um, that just seems like, how could you possibly score no to all of that? And yet, when you watch the way that Angela gives her gifts to the world, it's in such a different way, Mm -hmm. Um, such a different way. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. And the second thing is just to know if you're listening now um, and you also scored high on this quiz, I want you to know kind of what that means and what we found. So we did uh, right now still preliminary studies. We found that high scorers also score high on measures of states of awe and wonder, spirituality, um, and also the trait that the psychologist Elaine Aaron calls mm-hmm. high sensitivity, which basically means that you, you're you one of the 15% of people born into this world with a more highly reactive nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of react more to everything that's happening around you, you know, the good and the bad, the beautiful and the tragic, you react more intensely to all of it. Um, and then, and this gets to a point, Ian, that you made a few minutes ago, people who score high on this quiz, there's a mild correlation with anxiety and depression. Yes. And, and that's not surprising if you think about it. Like if you, if you're that much more reactive and open, those states can get you more. Mm -hmm. But, but I also think the important thing to say is that it's only a mild correlation. Mm-hmm. And in psychology, we the, the field of psychology kind of conflates this state of bittersweet melancholy with depression when in fact they're they're really different. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're experiencing bittersweetness in in a non-depressed way, let's say, then then it's what I think of as a richer form of happiness. So I think it's really important to make that distinction. Yeah, you you know, uh, I would bet, and I'm sure you've done some work around this, mm-hmm. but you know, the personality measurement, uh, the uh, the Big Five. Sure. Um, and it seems to me, as you were describing it, that uh, a person in this category would probably score high on neuroticism, which would speak to the depression, anxiety, the sensitivity. 
but also to that the category called openness to experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is that, I mean, it sounds like you have already done some of that research, but I, I haven't read it, but I'm just thinking aloud like, oh yeah, that's probably what's going on. They probably score a little bit low on conscientiousness, lower, oh. um, probably okay on agreeableness, maybe middle of the road. Um, anyway, and low on extroversion probably. So um, We actually didn't find that. That, that really? Was okay, really great. Tell me what yeah. happened. Well, I expected there to be a correlation between introversion and bittersweetness, and there really wasn't. The correlation okay. was with high sensitivity, but not with introversion, um, which I guess makes sense when you think about it, because when you look at highly sensitive people, not all of them are introverts, and then not all introverts are highly sensitive. It's really just a subset of introverts who are. So I guess there aren't enough in that subset to, to pick it up on that dimension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that did surprise me. So was there a particular experience of bittersweet longing that really inspired your book or transformed you? You know, what was there some moment of infused contemplation where you're like, there it is, and I got to write about this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. It was music. Mm-hmm. It, it was, oh my gosh, very much so. It was sad music, which I have been really? reacting ecstatically to for my whole life yes. and could never understand why. Um, and I actually wrote about it in the book that it, there was one moment in particular. Mm. Um, I used to be a lawyer in my old life before I became a writer. And when I was in law school, so I was in my early 20s, um, I was hanging out in my law school dorm and some friends were coming by to pick me up so we could go to class together. And I was blasting out sad music on my stereo speakers. And my friends came by and they were like, what are you doing? Why are you listening to this funeral music? <laughs> and, that and is so the, funny. Yeah. And I thought it was really funny at the time. And I, I just laughed and that was it. Except... It wasn't it. Like, seriously, for 25 years after that, I was thinking about that moment. I was like, what was that? Like, why? First of all, what is it in our culture that makes it so ridiculous to blast sad music in your dorm room? And then second, what is it about the music itself? Like, Yes. Because it's, it, it's theoretically sad, but I don't react with sadness to it, I react with love mm-hmm. and gratitude, and mm-hmm. um, like <laughs> to come back to that theme of connection, like the deepest, deepest form of connection with the musician and all the other yes. people who yes. you know are reacting the way you are to the music, like all of it. And so that's really what set me off on this quest. I was just trying to understand what the heck that was. Do you happen to remember any of those songs since you remember that and you've thought about it for 25 years? <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I actually created a whole bittersweet playlist that you can find on Spotify and Apple Music. So it'll oh, send cool. you straight to those songs. Okay. But my um, my patron saint is Leonard Cohen. Oh, like, my gosh. I you are love a him. <laughs> <laughs> Great. By the way, if none of you have seen the documentary, you have to. I wept in Which that one? documentary. Uh, the documentary on his life. Do you mean the Hallelujah one that just came out? Yes. I haven't seen that one yet. But oh, my I've, gosh, Susan. I've seen it. <gasps> Take oh, a day off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you will cry. I promise yeah, you will yeah, cry. I, I believe you. Anthony, I read through this uh, playlist, and it I mean, you'll laugh because so many of these are songs that we love. But then I wrote down some songs that, to me, were immediate. You know, like I could 
come up with as many as on this, you know, crazy numbers yeah. of songs like this. I don't know if you can come up with them, but I have a couple. Okay. Susan, see if they, if they re- resonate with you. But okay. <clears throat> there's a song by Iris Dement. She's a genius songwriter called When My Morning Comes Around. Mm. Do you, oh, do you know, know that song, that Susan? No, I don't. <gasps> oh, I don't. The last verse is, when my morning comes around, it's from a new cup I'll be drinking. Mm. And for once I won't be thinking, there's something wrong with me. Mm. And I'll wake up to find that my faults have been forgiven. And that's when I'll start living, when my morning comes around. Mm. Oh. Mm. <laughs> wow. That's good. That is that's so good. exquisite. Oh, my that's God. That's good. And then I thought about, um, I mean, this one is hackneyed, but Elgar's Nimrod variations from the Enigma variations. If you haven't heard that, that you know, no, the great shells, uh, Elgar, it is a, oh, my God. My son and I. He's a forest kind of dude too, but we went to the <laughs> symphony just to hear Elgar's Nimrod, uh, which is from the Enigma Variations. And it's not very long. It's only three or four minutes long. But if it doesn't transport you, you just need to lay down and recognize that you're dead. And then the <laughs> last one I thought about, Anthony, was uh, Mary Gaucher's song, Mercy Now. Oh. <laughs> so good. So right. Oh, anyway, those are the the couple. Oh, of course, then two. The reason I was laughing, by the way, is that Anthony, upon hearing yes. that, like literally just kind of fell over. He sort of exited oh. from the screen. Yes. <laughs> because yeah. because so he had good. gone horizontal. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing about those. And there's one more, right? Which is like, for example, and because she's so big in the news right now, I think about Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now that she recorded in yeah. 70. Yeah. It's that one that kills you. Oh yeah, the, the 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 one that she's sitting having sat in that song for so long, singing it for now, fifty you mean. years. She wrote yeah. that. Can you believe she wrote that like at twenty five? I mean, how is that humanly channeling possible? But she sings it at seventy, and you hear that. I've looked at life from both sides now. Yeah, and she's got yeah. that deep husky oh, voice now, gosh, and yeah. you just go, "Oh my gosh!" To hear her sing it at seventy. To win and lose and still somehow. So it's I like have a Johnny story. I just got goosebumps now. listening to you I sing did it. Too. I did oh too. my <laughs> gosh. But when you hear her sing it in that kind of very mm. plaintive voice, uh, but a friend of mine, well, you know Rob Mathis, he works at Abbey Road a lot. And a couple of the yeah. guys in the orchestra were there when that was played. And Susan, Ooh. please listen to it because it's just with an orchestra and her. Mm. And it's, it's just beautiful. her singing a song she wrote at 25, now at 70. And so the angle of the song is completely different, and it just will break your heart in the most beautiful way. You know, all my fr- all friends say I've changed, and, you know, it's like, oh. and he said that what happened at that session was she was singing a, a reference vocal in the booth, so it wasn't supposed to be the mm. final vocal. And the or- she was just singing it so that the orchestra had a reference for the vocal. And it was so good that they took the first pass, no comping, took the first pass, and at the end of it, the orchestra, and they've played with everybody, uh, stood and applauded her. Wow. Wow. Which is, I mean, at most, they just hit their bows on the stand, but they actually stood and applauded her performance because it was so exquisite. Wow. Uh, people were crying. Oh it gosh. was just, you know, out of this world. So All right, Susan, a, we got to start wrapping wait, up because you have a life a, to live. Anthony, what I do you got? A, I made a little list while you were talking. Oh, good. On Come on. on let's yeah. have it. So <laughs> sort of the counterpoint to what you just said was would be Johnny Cash singing Hurt. 
Oh, oh my God. do I love Forget that one? That's on my bitter. It. That's that's on my playlist. Okay, it is just um, the best. Al Green's "How Can You Mend a Broken Heart." Oh, uh, Bob Dylan "Boots of Spanish mm. Leather." Um, Stapleton's "Whiskey and You." Uh, a change is going to come by Otis Redding, and then I would say this is funny. This is my version, Susan, of you twenty five years ago, when I was like in I was like in sixth grade or something, and I heard um, Dan Hill's "Sometimes When We Touch." Oh yeah, <laughs> do you remember that song? Yeah, when, Sometimes yeah. when, we, and it just arrested my heart, and I just lived in that song. I think for that whole year, and. Um, Anyway, I, something was up with me that like that definitely impacted me and kind of revealed a, a, a bit of my personality there. So, oh yeah, I so get it. I think that yeah. you guys should create an Enneagram Four playlist. Ooh, that's oh, we a could. Great idea. Yeah, uh, it would take us about fifteen minutes to get a hundred <laughs> songs, uh, especially with Anthony on board. Anthony was a successful songwriter here in Nashville, and mm. and, and oh, wow, it, it so he's got it. He's got it all nailed down in the most. Uh, most beautiful ways. We could go on, Susan. We, we haven't even got to novels yet, which I had a, a list of Enneagram 4 bittersweet novels. Uh, we I have a list. Of, I mean, I was going to talk about Japan and in Ireland, talking about cultures that seem to be profoundly in touch yes. with, the, with the bittersweet, thinking about Japan and the wabi-sabi tradition. And the cherry uh, blossoms. And the, the cherry blossoms. blossoms, right, which is yugen, which is the word they used. You, did you have that in the book? I talked about, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but mano no aware, which is the Japanese phrase for happiness of the gentle sadness of passing things. Yes. Oh, the passing things. Yes. Yeah. And like their whole idea, like the reason they love cherry blossoms so much is not because it's the most beautiful flower, but because it's beautiful and so ephemeral. And yes. so it's symbolic of yes. that whole experience. Mm. And, you know, isn't it interesting? We could also hit uh, on spirituality things, like particularly with the Buddhists and, of course, with some Christians. The Buddhists would, you know, would be talking about the impermanence of all things, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is, has to do with the passing of time and, and uh, to be so connected with, uh, with that passage in, in a way that is beautiful. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, Gosh, so much. I wish this was a four-part episode, or I wish you and I were sitting over coffee somewhere. We would not <laughs> stop talking. Oh my gosh, everybody! Uh, what were you going to say, Susan? You were going to go. I was just going to say one thing. I, I was going to say about Buddhism that I found really interesting. Like as I was researching the book, you know, I I was so tuned into this state of longing that we've been talking about as a very positive state. But like in in, in Buddhism, traditionally, you would associate the word longing with something that you want to extinguish, you know, longing as a kind of form of craving that's not the right way of being. Um, so I I got really into exploring Sufism as, as part of this mm-hmm. research. So Sufism is the uh, mystical branch of Islam. And, um, and I was following the work of this one teacher, Llewellyn Von Lee, um, who's amazing. You should watch his videos. He's All incredible. Right. And, um, and anyway, I went and asked him, I was like, well, in Buddhism, longing is seen as this negative state, and yet Llewellyn von Lee is talking about longing all the time as as kind of the pathway home. And um, and and he gave. I, I talked about this in the book. He gave a really great distinction between the longing of craving versus just that longing to go home, um, which which are really totally different states of being. But because we use the same word for it, we confuse them. 
I I think it's really important to make that distinction. Yeah. Wonderful. Everybody, I'm I'm speaking with who I hope, with someone who I hope is my new friend, Susan Cain, author of Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And of course, her huge bestseller, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Susan, I feel so like, uh, as well, as the great Carl Rahner said, uh, we we all finish life. Uh, what does he say? No, he says uh, we are all unfinished symphonies, uh, oh, and I feel like good. this is an unfinished symphony. That this conversation should not end right now. But if it totally. doesn't, we're all going to age, and we really <laughs> need to get on with our lives. And um, <laughs> gosh, thank you so much for helping us explore this incredibly important topic, bittersweet for, I think this is going to like blow the minds of our Enneagram force. Mm. I hope it blows the minds of people in our lives who are married or friends, partnered, whoever with Enneagram fours. Cause I think, you know, Enneagram fours are the most single, most misunderstood number on the Enneagram because they are mysteries to themselves, mysteries to other people, this longing, this this pining for the unattainable, this inconsolable longing for the unnameable, all these things uh, to many people like your friend Angela, you know, it's a little puzzling. They're a little bit like, I don't really understand what it is you're talking about. And yet we do bring something to the table of life uh, in, in the form of things like your book, Quiet, and in this new book, Bittersweet, or in the songs of Leonard Cohen, or you know, uh, the works of uh, Ingmar Bergman and, and, and oh, yeah. Martha Graham, and the list could go on and on of people who have used their connection really to suffering, actually, and have made something more beautiful out of it and point us toward home in whatever way we want to define it to ourselves. It's so funny that you end with that because I think maybe the most important line to me that I wrote in Bittersweet is, whatever pain you can't get rid of, make it your creative offering. That's good. All right. On that note, friends. (laughs) (laughs) Typology tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time. 